For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is work within us, to him be the glory in church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Tim. Um... Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus. Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. All right, I love the hand motions in the back row. That was such a chorus of Jesus loves me. I love it. I I love that song. I'm pretty sure you love that song and you've heard it your whole life. And here's the thing about that song, especially among Christian circles, and even outside of Christian circles, people who don't know or love Jesus, that song is pretty ubiquitous. Now let me tell you what ubiquitous means. <laughs> um, smartphones in society today have become ubiquitous. You know what I mean? In 2007, when the iPhone first came out, could, do you remember like seeing anybody with an iPhone? And you're like, oh my gosh. It was a novelty. It was new and exciting. It was like you couldn't believe that they had an iPhone, right? Now, if you see somebody with an iPhone, you don't, you don't really think much of it, do you? It's ubiquitous. It's probably... Uh, well, smartphones are probably the most common phone, at least in America right now. They're ubiquitous. And iPhones in particular are probably the most ubiquitous smartphone. They're probably the most widespread, most used one. So ubiquitous kind of means this omnipresence. This It's widespread, it's well-known, everybody knows about it. It's not novel, it's not exciting, it's, it's just everywhere, right? Well, the song, Jesus Loves Me, when you say, is pretty ubiquitous. When we sang it, nobody in here was guessing at what the words were, right? Nobody looked around awkward. <laughs> Okay, well, we did look around. <laughs> but you 
weren't awkward because you didn't know the words of this song that everybody else knew. You were maybe awkward because you didn't want to sing Jesus Loves Me in front of everybody, right? <laughs> that song's made for five-year-olds to sing. My voice is not five-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> I know we did to the end and I thought... It's okay. I enjoyed it. Just <laughs> <laughs> embrace the falsetto. I love that. <laughs> um, but that song is ubiquitous, meaning everybody here knew about it without me having to give you a song sheet, right? <laughs> You didn't have to uh, learn a new tune. You didn't have to learn new words. You knew Jesus loves me. Smartphones in society are ubiquitous. And here's another thing which I think happens to be ubiquitous within and without the church. And it's kind of a problem. And that's that Christ's love these days is a little too ubiquitous not it's not a problem that it's omnipresent or that people know about it that's not a problem what's a problem is that it's lost its power and it's lost its strength it's lost its novelty again not a problem that everybody knows about it but a problem that the power of his love and everything that comes with it is no longer exciting, novel, life-transforming, and earth-shattering. It's just ubiquitous. Well, let's look at what Paul has to say. And I think this uh, sort of addresses that problem. So look at chapter 3 of Ephesians and focus in on verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. Let's stop there. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And this is going to be key to understanding this passage, to understanding the significance. And it's even made it into the title of this message. This message is called, Bent Knee in God Glory. Alright? So, When he says that he's bent his knee, what is he doing? Well, when we bend our knees before the Lord, he is referring to, that's one way of saying that he's praying. He's bent his knee. And he's doing something. He's taking a posture. And overall, this this whole little section right here at the end of chapter 3 that we're going to finish up tonight is... Paul's prayer, one of a few prayers from Paul in Ephesians. And we're going to be looking at a few things about Paul's prayer. Okay, we're going to be looking at the message of his prayer. We're going to be looking at the language of his prayer. Okay, and we're going to be looking at the goal of his prayer. The message, the language, and the goal. What is this prayer about? Well, in terms of the message, he's already sending a message right here in the first sentence, which isn't even part of the prayer. Or is it? He says he's bent his knee. Now, is that part of the prayer? Or is it just something you do in order to pray? 
Is it essential to prayer? Or is it just it happens to be that way and other people do it, so I did it too? I'm going to say that it's essential to prayer. In fact, his bowing the knee was part of his prayer. That's part of the message of his prayer. What he's saying is he's not sending a verbal message. He's sending a nonverbal message in bowing his knee. Right? And what is that nonverbal message? When you bow your knee, it's a sign of reverence. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of saying, I'm not in control. Right? It's a sign of accepting what is before you. It's a sign of saying, I cannot and will not assert myself. I won't flex my muscle. I won't be in control in this situation. Instead, I bow my knee. So I'd say it's essential to his prayer, or it's even part of his prayer, that he is bowing his knee. Well, now let's read on. Verse 15. For whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, uh, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power of his spirit in your inner being. So he's bowing his knee before the father and he's saying um, from him, every family in heaven and on earth is named. So everything in the created order, he is acknowledging God's created order. He is referring to uh, the family. Like he just says that, but uh, when he says family, he is acknowledging the fatherhood of God. All of created order over which God is not just our father and my father and your father, but he is the father, the creator over all the powers, principalities, powers seen and unseen, angels, the heavenly hosts. He is the father, right? And now it says his first request, this prayer has four requests that Paul makes he makes his first request and it's that according to uh, by his spirit that he might strengthen you internally that he might as he says here that you might be strengthened through his spirit in your inner being so his first request for the Ephesian church is that you might have inner strength Now, what distinguishes inner strength from some other kind of strength? Well, we're pretty clear on what, like, physical strength is, right? We see athletes possess it, and we see bodybuilders and weightlifters put on feats of outward strength, right? Meaning they can lift a lot, they can sustain a lot. They can bear a lot on their shoulders. Imagine Charles Atlas with the world on his shoulders, right? He's doing a feat of outer strength. Now, it is possible to have outer strength and lack inner strength. A person without inner strength, yet with physical strength, could do a physical feat like Charles Atlas without inner strength could still do that pose of bearing the world on his shoulders, right? But inner strength is something different. 
it is, and I would say the best way to describe it is this inner contentedness, this inner solitude, this inner steadfastness. Steadfast like you can't be moved. You're strong on the inside. Here's examples of inner strength like courage and bravery and contentment and peace and being having a set mind. And here's another sign of inner strength. Love. Love is an inner strength. There is a power to be had from love. And the strength that it gives is not the same strength as Charles Atlas' strength. It's an inner strength. So this is Paul's first request for the Ephesian church. Let's read on. Um... Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So second request, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This goes along with inner strength, right? This Christ dwelling in your heart will make a person at peace, steadfast, courageous, bold, have love, right? These two go hand in hand. They're not disconnected. So he's praying, secondly, that you will have Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. And now let me point this out. He's writing this, and when he's saying you, he's referring to you as in a church, not you as in the personal you. Not that that doesn't apply, or not that you're not part of the whole, but he's referring to the whole. So that in you collectively, meaning in you church, in you tree of life, that Christ may dwell in you. In you collectively, in you as a community, that inside of you, as you are girded up with this inner strength, that you might be filled with Christ in your hearts. So that when I come and look, or if some outsider comes in from the outside and looks at us, what he's seeing is a collection of people with Christ dwelling in their hearts and what happens in your heart inevitably comes out in your actions, right? So a group or a church or a ministry or a gathering of God's believers, a community with Christ dwelling in their hearts and acting their actions out of their hearts. That's his second prayer request. Third is this, that you may be strengthened to understand Christ's love. And he throws in this image in there, the height and breadth and depth and length of Christ's love. He's saying 
in effect, I pray that you would understand every single dimension of Christ's love, that you would plumb its depths, that you would soar to its heights, that you would wrap your arms around its breadth. You understand? He is, it's his way of saying, I pray that you would understand the vastness of Christ's love. And now, what about that problem that Christ's love is ubiquitous, right? What about that love that when I say Jesus loves you, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Why does maybe that not sink in? Why is there maybe not power behind those words? Why is that maybe not exciting and life-changing and about to possess you to go out and change the world? Because it's ubiquitous and it's lost its power. And now, why has it lost its power? And I think that we've failed or maybe just perhaps forgotten to see Christ's love for what it is. And instead, we make it out what we want it to be. See, Christ's love is not just niceness. Christ's love is not just being a friend of everybody. It's not giving everybody what they want. It's not, uh, you know, if we have the ability to uh, give everybody a winning lottery ticket. That's not Christ's love. Let's see for a second the significance of Christ's love. Now, God, through time, has been in an act of revelation. Revelation means he is revealing. And in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, when everything was created and it was good, There was no need for revelation because God dwelt there in the Garden of Eden among men. He did not need to reveal. He just was. Does that make sense? However, because sin and death entered the world and God became separated from man and God instituted a plan that he would work through history, he then needed to reveal to man himself. So it's like this. There is a veil. Behind it is God. On this side is us, man, the creature, the created. And God has been at the edge of the veil just lifting it. What is this right here? This is a Bible. This is revelation. It was written in time and space by the hand of man. This is revelation. This is God revealing himself to us. And as the story of the Bible progresses, a little more and a little more and a little more gets revealed. The the gradual revelation of God. So that as time unfolds, Our understanding of God unfolds. Does that make sense? Well, now, Jesus comes into time and space and into history, and he enters in, and he just jumps through the veil, and he goes, here I am. Right? I'm God. Don't take that out of context. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh no. I sense a meeting coming on. Uh, but God, Jesus rather, he jumps through the veil and he reveals to us, to humanity, exactly what God is in the flesh. He is the word became flesh. This is the word in our trying to understand and read the word and somebody sitting up in front and teaching and, and giving the history and understanding behind what's going on in the word. Well, he was the word and he jumped through the veil and says, here I am. This is exactly what God is like. What you see me do, I do what I see the father do. The way you see me love people, this is the way that the Father loves people. The way you see me hang out with sinners, tax collectors, the unclean, that's how God's love is. It's not what you've made it out to be. It's not exclusively for Israel and the religious parties. It's not for you to be kept to yourself. It's for the world. And now let's think, that veil, that's not just a metaphor and illustration that I'm using. That veil was a real thing. That veil was in the tabernacle. It was the veil behind which the high priest would go in once a year and meet with the Father. Where God's presence would come down to earth and where the priest would go and meet with the Father face to face, where he was in God's presence, unhindered, this special time. No more need for revelation because he's there. He's revealed. There's no veil separating him. And that veil still existed in the day of Christ, right, as he lived his life. And then he came and he did the greatest act of love that humanity has ever known. And that was giving up his own life on the cross for the sins of many. We're the many. And as he did that, and as he said his last words on the cross, he said, it is finished. And what happened? The veil tore from top to bottom. Why did it tear from top to bottom? Because it was not man accomplished. It was God accomplished it was from the father above so this love that tore the veil that separates god and man that required this revelation this veil has now been torn by god love from top to bottom not just any old love not man love not wishy-washy i feel one one way this day and one way the next day love not uncommitted love, not the type of love that we're typically used to experiencing uh, in our everyday life. Perfect love that casts out fear. Committed love that will never uncommit. Love whose yes means yes and no means no. Love who when he promises all the promises that he gave will deliver no matter how bad circumstances in life look. No matter how much we could find ourselves in despair and look around and point at everything that's wrong with the world. 
The love of God is right with the world. And what is, what is the consequence of allowing Christ's love to remain ubiquitous? For us not to see and revel in the significance, for us to not allow it to transform our lives and to transform our love in the way that we treat each other, the way that we are to the Father, the transparency we have with Him, and the way that we love our neighbors? What happens if we allow it to remain ubiquitous? The consequence is glory to man in the church forever and ever. Does that, does that sound right? Does that sound like that should be in the Bible? At the end of Paul's prayer, glory to man in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. That just doesn't sit right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way the story is supposed to go. Well, glory to man in the church... I think it happens, and I think it happens because we see and understand or fail to understand the height and depth and breadth and length and all the dimensions of Christ's love. Now, we have really awesome worship services with great music and awesome sermons that are prepared beforehand and the grand display of everything that is the worship service, and the perfectly timed communion that uh, everything just goes right, and the announcements that are exactly 45 seconds and no longer, because we, we want to maintain attention, and the exact order of the worship and the perfection of the production. Now, nothing against all those things but those things could turn into glory to man in the church. If I preach a sermon and it's about me, then shame on me. That's glory to man in the church forever and ever. I don't want that. However, Paul's prayer isn't finished yet. He has one more part, and it's called the doxology. Okay? So let's read these last two verses, verse 20 and 21. This is Paul's doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Does that sound better? Well, here's the thing. When Paul prays that we would understand all the dimensions of Christ's love, it isn't just haphazard. It's because he doesn't want Christ's love to be ubiquitous. 
He doesn't want to have he doesn't want Christ's love to not be novel or not have a ring or not be significant in our lives or not transform our decisions and our motives and our ethics and the way we treat people. He wants Christ's love that when we understand it, then when we grasp onto it, us as a church, when we really get Christ's love, that will be glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That will be the result. Now, this God love that Christ demonstrated on the cross and in the tearing of the veil from top to bottom, this was a demonstration that he was not just man, but he was also God. Fully God, fully man, both at the same time. But let's not sacrifice one for the other. He was demonstrating his God love when he forgave the sins of the world. He was demonstrating his God love when he tore the veil from top to bottom, the separation of man and God. Now, to seriously believe that Christ is God means that I am not. You are not. We are not. So, glory to man in the church cannot be. This is not a place designed for catering to our needs, serving our comforts, fulfilling our, our underfed egos. It's not for any of that. The glory is for God in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's what it is. So let's return to where Paul started. The bended knee. Right? Bended knee and God glory go hand in hand. Glory to man in the church does not look like a bended knee. So when Paul bends his knee and begins his prayer by sending out this message, I'm on bended knee, he is physically posturing himself, and he is in time and space sending a message that the glory is to God in the church forever and ever. And that's what he wants these this Ephesian church to grasp onto. And now this language that he uses throughout, well, in this section that we've read, this section is intended to be a prayer. But what we see throughout Ephesians is the whole thing is very prayerful. Right? It begins uh, with a greeting, and then it immediately talks about our spiritual blessings in Christ. And as he talks about that, he talks about, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds very prayerful. And then he actually prays. He records his prayer. Goes into chapter 2. Again, here in the end of chapter 3, he's praying. And he 
says something about language and he says something about the way that believers are to conduct themselves and the language that we are to use and is that our language is to be prayerful so we talked about the message that he sent and we looked at the different requests that he made in his prayer we just finished up the language and what is the goal of his prayer what does he ultimately want He wants believers in the church of Ephesus to be imitating him. That as he bends his knee, they would bend their knee. That in that, as as they are filled by the Holy Spirit with a knowledge of the love of Christ, that they would be filled with the fullness of God. That is his ultimate desire. That is his ultimate goal for his prayer. That they would be filled with the fullness of God. Or that we would be filled with the fullness of God. That collectively as a community, we would be so full of the fullness of God. Understanding the love of Christ. That as we will see in the rest of the the last three chapters of Ephesians. That we will walk in a manner worthy of that. That it will become intensely practical. That it will penetrate every part of our lives it'd be something that we can't get away from it'd be something that informs our everyday walk and our everyday language and our everyday thoughts and our everyday prayers that the love of Christ and the fullness of God will be dwelling in us cool let's pray dear Lord thank you for your love and God help us in our lives to not allow it to be ubiquitous help us to not allow it to be ubiquitous within our community God may we be a community that reminds each other of the love of God God that feels comfortable holding each other accountable for the way that we walk asking are we walking in a manner worthy of our calling Lord bless this group and I pray that you fill all of them by your Holy Spirit with the knowledge of every dimension of your love And allow that to transform them on the inside. And that in tree of life, to you would be the glory forever and ever through all generations. Amen.